Well, this morning I want to begin by asking you to think through this question. Ready? Here's the question. Does the gospel, does the gospel truly shape your life? Does the gospel truly shape your life? Is the gospel, its message and its realities, is that, is that changing, transforming, defining, guiding, shaping your life? Not, not your spouse, not your kids, not your neighbors. When you ask that question yourself, does the gospel truly shape your life? And if this morning, as I ask that question, you feel led to answer that question in the positive, yes, Ryan, it is shaping my life. Let me ask you some follow-up questions. Here's the follow-up questions. How much is it shaping your life? How much is it shaping your life? How deep does its influence in your life go? Does it just affect you on Sundays? Or just when you're, you know, at home in the mornings, reading your Bible, Can people only see the gospel's influence on you when you're around other Christians? Or is the influence of the gospel making its way into the hard moments of your life? Or or what about the mundane moments of your life? Or what about the every day on your way to work stuck in traffic moments of your life? Is the gospel shaping your life? And if so, how much, how deep is its influence? Now maybe... Uh, before you feel like you can adequately answer that question, I need to take a step back and make sure we're all on the same page when I say that word, gospel. What is the gospel? What's the gospel? Talk about it a lot. What is it? Well, the gospel is good news. That's what that term means. It simply means good news. But in order to stand, understand what, what's good about the good news first need to understand some bad news. And here's the bad news. As the Apostle Paul says so very clearly in his letter to the Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, And the all in that verse means, guess what? Every single one of us. Every single one of us. No exclusion. We've We've all turned away, every single one of us has turned away from from the good and right purpose for which God made us, God created us. And that good and right purpose is to glorify Him. That's why He made us. We are made to reflect His beauty, His love, His holiness, His grace, His glory. And we've all fallen short of that. And we've all fallen short through our own intentional, willful, deliberate pursuit of of our own glory. Our own glory. Even though God, as our good and loving creator, has every right, he has every right to call us to live for the purpose for which he made us, even though he has every right, guess what we've all said to him? No, thank you. I'd rather not. I will do what I want, when I want, how I want. Thank you very much. We've all rebelled. We've all rebelled against our maker, spurning his good ways for our own foolish, selfish, me-centered pursuits. We have sinned against God, every single one of us. But that's not the end nor the pinnacle of the bad news. Where the bad news becomes really bad news is when you realize, when we realize that our sin brings judgment. Our sin brings judgment. Later in that same letter to the Romans, Paul explains that the wages of sin is death. Wages of sin is death. 
That's what our sin earns. It earns death. It earns God's judgment. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, God is just to cast us away from his presence, cast us away from his glory, cast us away from his life. The very life we were created to enjoy in fellowship with him. But God is just to cast us away from that. And see, here's the thing. That's what happens to rebels. That's what happens to rebels. Those who rebel against the king and his kingdom, they don't get to then enjoy the king and his kingdom. Instead, they discover the judgment of the king. They discover the wrath of the king. And that's where, because of our sin, we find ourselves. This is not not fiction. It's reality. It's where we find ourselves. In Romans chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes this. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Not there might be, not there could be. It's reality. God in his holy justice will judge our rebellion. And again, that's not fiction. That's a very very scary reality. It's coming. It's reality. But it doesn't have to be our future reality, praise God. And that's where the good news comes in. You see, the glorious good news is that God acted from his grace, from his mercy, from his love. He acted in order to save us from the consequences of our rebellion. John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, explains it so beautifully and so clearly. For God so loved the world, a sinful fallen rebels, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but shall have eternal life. That verse tells us that as an act of love, as an act of love, God gave. He gave. God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took upon himself our humanity. And that was God the Father's plan. That was God the Father's gift to us. And the Son came and he, he lived in our humanity. He lived the life that we've all failed to live. That life of obedience to the Father. That life of selfless holiness. A life that glorified God as it was intended to. As all of our lives were intended to, to glorify God. But he didn't just come to to live the life we failed to live. As I mentioned already this morning in communion, he came to die the death that we deserved to die. He came to pay the penalty for our sins. He came to take the wages, the consequences of our sin. He suffered what we rebels should have suffered, the righteous and holy wrath of God upon our sin. And he suffered it for us. That's how God gave his son. And the good news is, the good news is, Whoever believes in him, and whoever means who, what? Any one of us, right? Whoever believes in him, in Jesus who lived and died and rose again, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's the good news. The good news is that through faith in Christ, we are saved from the judgment that we sinful rebels are due. We can be saved, not by our works, not by trying to earn God's favor, We're saved as a gift from God, received by faith. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the gospel. That's the good news. And here's the thing. All who see and understand and embrace the good news, 
who embrace salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. All who embrace that are Christians. Christians. That's what makes you a Christian. You don't become a Christian simply by going to church, or by being born into a Christian family, or by being baptized, or by reading your Bible, or by saying a prayer. A Christian, a Christian, truly in the biblical sense, a Christian is a person who has embraced the gospel. The good news that though we are sinners deserving God's judgment, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. That's what I mean when I say the gospel. That's what the Bible means when it talks about the gospel. But here's the question I want to drive at this morning. Is how is that truth? You say, okay, I'm a Christian, Ryan. I've embraced the gospel. So my question to you this morning is, how is that truth then shaping your life? How is the gospel shaping your life? How is it transforming you? Again, let me share with you some words from the Apostle Paul. This time, he's not writing to the Romans, he's writing to the Galatians. And let me quote to you from his letter to the Galatians. This is Galatians 2.20. Listen to what he writes. He says, Galatians 2.20, listen to this. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And here's what he means by that. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And here's what he means. It is no longer I who live... But Christ, who lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how Paul, that's how Paul's life was being shaped by the gospel. His entire life was radically transformed by the gospel. It wasn't just a Sunday thing for Paul. It wasn't just an occasional thing for Paul. It was an all of life thing for Paul. Again, he says, the life I now live in the flesh. That means my, my everyday life. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In other words, I live my whole life for my Savior. That's how the gospel was shaping Paul. It was saturating his entire life, his entire life. But here's the thing. Maybe I'm wrong on this. You can tell me, Ryan, you're wrong on this. But here's what I think we often do. I think too many of us are trying to quarantine off the gospel. And what I mean by that is we just kind of compartmentalize it to different segments, different sections of our life. Well, it's just my, my get out of hell free card. Or it's just a Sunday morning thing. Or it's just for my devotional time. It's just for when I'm around other Christians. Too often, we don't truly allow the gospel to work through the entirety of our lives, transforming us as it should. Again, maybe you disagree with that, but it's what I think I see. I see it in my life, and I see it in the lives of others. Too often, we don't, just don't let the gospel loose in our lives. But I want to challenge us this morning to change that. I want to challenge us to let the gospel loose and watch what can really happen when we do. And in order to challenge us this morning, I want to share with you both an analogy and a testimony. Analogy and a testimony. First, let me, me share with you the analogy. I want you to think of the gospel, and you see on the screen behind me here, I want you to think of the gospel like leaven. Like leaven. Now, leaven is a substance, typically yeast, that is added into the dough. And what happens when it's added into the dough? Changes it, right? It affects the dough. It transforms the dough. It causes a reaction, a, a fermentation. That goes through the dough, lightens the dough, softens the dough, it transforms the dough. So it has that influence. And in the scriptures, leaven is often used figuratively of that which, once it's introduced into the system, 
produces substantial change in the system. Jesus warned his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees. And what he's warning them there is he's warning them against the Pharisees' legalistic and judgmental ways, which could easily infect the disciples' thinking. It could lead them to misunderstandings of grace, misunderstandings of what it means to truly live a holy life. The Pharisees were really good at, at superficial holiness. So Jesus warns his disciples, you get this thinking of the Pharisees, it gets in and it infects everything. But Jesus didn't always use that analogy of leaven in a negative way. He also used leaven to explain the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, it starts small, but once it gets going and it gets spreading, its influence can be amazing, just like leaven. That's the way leaven works. I want you to understand this morning, that's also the way the gospel works. That's also the way the gospel works. Once it's introduced into our lives and we really let it work, don't try to quarantine it off, but we really let it work, its influence, the way that it shapes us, can be amazing. be amazing. It will change us. It will transform us from the inside out. As it works, it will transform us. It will transform our relationships with other people. And it will even start to impact the culture around us. The leaven of the gospel is that powerful. And that leads me to a testimony that I want to share with you this morning. A testimony of the the powerful, transforming work of the gospel. The leaven of the gospel. And we're going to find this testimony starting in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. So if you haven't turned there already, and I know some of you, you look on the screen and go, oh, this is where we're going to be. I'm already there. But if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn over to Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians, chapter 3. Now, back before Easter Sunday, we were working through Paul's instructions here in verses 18 to 21. We were working through uh, what the reformer Martin Luther called the household table. And as you can see here in the text, in chapter 3, starting in verse 18, Paul is addressing the different relationships in the home. He talks to husbands and wives and parents and children. And as, he, as we work through those verses, I pointed out that Paul is helping these Colossian believers to understand what it really looks like when grace comes home. What it looks like when grace comes home. He's showing them what it looks like as the gospel works itself out in a Christian family. And it looks like, you can see it there in the text, but it looks like a wife who as an act of grace, remember we talked about this, gives her husband more than he deserves. As an act of grace, she submits to her husband. And it looks like a husband who, following the model of Christ, shows his wife the grace of of sacrificial love. It looks like the grace of God-honoring obedience that a child is to give to their parents. And it looks like a father who, understanding the power of his influence, parents his children in kindness and care not out of anger or frustration. In those verses that we work through, Paul gives us a beautiful picture of a home of grace. But Paul's not finished addressing the relationships in the home. Starting in verse 22 and running down through the first verse of chapter 4, Paul turns his attention to a relationship that is thankfully lacking in our homes. But it was very much present in the first century homes. Look at what he writes, starting in verse 22. Bond servants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Here again, Paul is addressing a relationship that is thankfully absent in our homes, uh, that relationship of slave and master. But such a relationship, as I said, was very much a first century reality. This was a common household dynamic. Uh, in large cities like Colossae, historians estimate that as much of a th- as a third of the population would have been slaves. Which is a third of the po- I mean, that's thousands of people. So this was a pretty common dynamic in the first century home. There were lots of slaves, and the slaves functioned in all kinds of capacities. Some slaves were assigned the extremely difficult task of working in the mines, like the salt mines, and their, uh, their life was brutal and it was often short. Uh, there were other slaves who worked out in the fields, and that was a significant step up from working in the mines, but it still wasn't like the life of the household or the domestic slave. Now, household slaves or domestic slaves, although they were still viewed as property, they were, they were brought into a family and they were seen as part of the family, and they were treated in a, in a far different way than the, the lower classes of slaves, the mining or the agricultural slaves. Uh, domestic slaves were often in charge of the children. Um, some handled their master's finances, his business matters. Uh, others, and really most of them, were often given various uh, areas of responsibility within the household. And, and that group, domestic slaves, that's the group that Paul's addressing here in our text. He, he is speaking to a household, and he's speaking to the the bond servants in that household and their masters. And their masters, that would be the same guy that Paul's already addressed in verses 19 and 21 when he spoke to husbands and fathers. But before we, we talk about what Paul says to these slaves and their masters, I want to make, take a moment just make sure we, under, we have a proper understanding of slavery in the first century. It was often difficult and brutal, the way that I'm sure many of us think of slavery. Uh, But it was also a little different than maybe many of us think of slavery. Uh, Listen to what commentator Douglas Moo explains. Listen to this. He writes, Many of us whose knowledge of slavery is determined by the institution as it existed in the antebellum United States South, so pre-Civil War uh, America. He says, Many of us whose knowledge of slavery is determined by the, the institution as it existed at that time think of slavery in terms of the forced subjugation of a certain race of people. That's how we think of slavery. He says, though, However, while many people in the ancient world did become slaves through force, through, through war, for instance, take them captives and make them slaves, many others voluntarily sold themselves into slavery. Why would somebody do that? Because they were so financially destitute or they were tired of their poverty, so they would sell themselves into slavery. And for some, it was short-term. For some, it was a permanent thing. For some, they would be able to save up the money to purchase themselves out of slavery. Others felt like, no, this is what works for me, so they would stay as slaves. He continues, nor was slavery in the Greco-Roman world racially based. Slaves came from all races and ethnic groups. And because they were spread over so many occupations and social classes, ancient slaves had little sense of solidarity. So first century slavery wasn't just about one ethnic group or just about subjugated people. It was really about all kinds of people, all kinds of people. And it was a way of life, a a difficult and deeply ingrained in that culture way of life for all kinds of people living in the first century world. All kinds of people were living that life. But what I want us to do this morning as we approach this text and its addressing of those living in that way of life, is what I want us to do is I want us to see how the, the leaven of the gospel enters in and works itself out in their lives. 
How did the gospel shape them? How did it, it intersect with that reality of first century slavery and impact that reality? How does the leaven of the gospel work itself out in the life of a slave, in the life of a master, in their relationship together, and in the culture around them? So I've been thinking about this text. What I want us to do is I, I want us to kind of look at this text like we're, we're looking through the window of this text in order to witness the testimony of our first century brothers and sisters and see how, how did the gospel shape them. And my hope is that as we see how it shaped them, hopefully we'll learn some things along the way about how it should shape us. So that's how we're going to approach this text this morning. So let's begin by talking about how the leaven of the gospel was introduced into their situation. How did the gospel come in and start impacting the reality of a first century slave and a first century master. Well, the first thing that we can say is that the gospel came in and it changed the way that they saw themselves. It changed the way that they saw themselves. It gave them a new, and we could probably say a proper identity. A new and a proper identity. And that new identification started with making very clear to them what was their greatest problem. And, and I want you to mark this down. What was their greatest problem? It wasn't their slavery. It wasn't their financial situation or the the difficulties that that created. What was their greatest problem? As I've already pointed out, the gospel makes clear that our greatest problem is what? One of sin and judgment. Our greatest problem is that we have an issue with holy and eternal God, or probably better said, he has an issue with us. And if we don't deal with that issue, that issue of sin and judgment, whatever we suffer in this life, even if that's being a slave, is going to pale in comparison to what's coming next. So as these first century folks heard the gospel message, they were confronted with a need far greater than financial stability, far greater than what social class you occupied, far greater than whether or not you were a slave. They were confronted with a a deeper identity than, than being a slave or a free man. They were confronted with the reality of being sinners in the hands of a holy God. They were confronted with that. This is who you are. But when they then heard and understood and embraced the gospel, what happened to that identity? Radically changed, right? That's what the gospel does. It radically changes our identity. You see, through faith in Christ, they no longer became just just sinners under judgment. Now they became people with a glorious Hope, salvation. They became people whose life isn't just about social classes or economic feasibility, but it's about Christ the King and his glorious kingdom, which is freely given to them and which they're going to enjoy for all eternity. Glorious hope introduced into the system. The lives of these first century folks, it was invaded with a radical hope through their embrace of the gospel. And with that gospel, hope also came a new Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a point made repeatedly throughout the New Testament, and it's also made repeatedly in our text for this morning. Look at the text. Verse 24, Paul reminds these bondservants, you are serving who? End of verse 24. You are serving who? The Lord Christ. That's who you're serving. And then down in verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul makes it clear to the masters. Hey, masters, pay attention. You also have a master, a Lord where? In heaven. 
So through the gospel, all these new Christians in Colossae, whether they were slaves or masters, they came to recognize the Lord who is over every Lord, their Lord, Jesus Christ. And guess what? Under that new Lord, under that new master, everybody's equal. Amen? Everybody's equal. That is the reality of our standing in Christ. We are all equal. We are all brothers and sisters. We are all equal in value, equal in worth before our God. Look, look back in the text here. Look back in chapter, chapter 3, verse 11. Look at what Paul writes there. Chapter 3, verse 11. He writes here, and when he says here, he's meaning in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. Then what's the next two that he mentions? There is not slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. All makes one. We are all one. Equal, brothers and sisters in Christ. And the, these were the glorious gospel truths, the gospel leaven that was introduced into the lives of these people, these slaves and their masters. So they were sinners deserving of judgment. They had been given glorious salvation, glorious hope. And that hope radically redefined their lives. It gave them a new Lord and a new kingdom and a new identity in which all were brothers and sisters in Christ. All were equal in Christ. That's the truth, that through the gospel had come into their lives. That was the leaven that had been introduced into the system. But here's the next question for us. How did that leaven work itself out? What was the leaven that was introduced? We talked about that. How did it work itself out? What did it look like as it began to work itself out in these relationships now between bondservants and their masters? Well, it looked like some very countercultural actions, but maybe not the countercultural actions we would expect. First, let's look at how the gospel of this new hope, this new Lord, this new identity worked itself out in the life of a Christian bondservant. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, what does Paul call these bondservants to do? He says, bondservants do what? Obey. Bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Maybe our 21st century mind would go, that's a little surprising. Really? Maybe we want to say to Paul, Paul, what are you doing here? Why would you tell these slaves to obey their masters? I mean, don't you realize, Paul, they're, they're of just as much value as their masters. I mean, Paul, didn't you just say that we're all one in Christ? Paul, why aren't you telling these slaves to, to rise up, to realize their worth, to throw off their chains of oppression and be free? Paul, why are you doing that? Why are you encouraging these precious brothers and sisters in Christ to continue as slaves for one more moment? What are you doing, Paul? Why are you doing this? Why are you telling them to obey? Here's why. Here's something that Paul understood that I think maybe brothers and sisters we lose sight of. The biggest issue, the biggest issue in those first century homes and in that first century culture was not slavery. The biggest issue in those homes and in that first century culture, was not slavery. The biggest issue in those homes and in that culture, just like in our homes and in our culture, was a desperate need for the gospel. Amen? That's the biggest need. And brothers and sisters, we we need to get back to remembering. And maybe you do, so if you're with me, just amen this. But if not, let this challenge you a little bit. We need to get back to realizing, to understanding that real deep down transformation in both our hearts and in our culture is only going to come from the gospel. It's it's the only thing powerful enough, amen, 
to transform our hearts and the gospel. Politics, finances, we sometimes want to turn to those things, but they're not strong enough. The only thing that's going to truly transform our hearts and our culture is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul understood that. He understood that. And that's why, writing in a different letter to Titus, he says this. This is Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. Titus 2, 9 and 10. He says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Sounds like our text. He continues. They are to be well-pleasing... Not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And then listen to this. Why? Listen to this. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see, it was all about pointing people to the doctrine of God our Savior. It was all about pointing people to the gospel. And these bondservants, through their, through their faithful and noble submission to the authority over them, They were doing that very thing. They were opening the doors for gospel proclamation and gospel conversation. They were adorning through through their humble, selfless attitude. They were adorning the doctrine of God, showing their fellow slaves, showing their masters, and showing the world that Jesus Christ is enough. They were showing that Jesus Christ is enough. You see, Paul understood the biggest issue, the biggest need was not personal freedom or financial stability. The biggest need, the biggest issue is eternal salvation. This life is just a blip, right? Just a vapor. Eternity is coming, brothers and sisters. And Paul understood that's the biggest need, eternal salvation. And the only way to address that need is how? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the gospel and so he encourages these bondservants to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior with their faithful, sincere, and different obedience. And that's really what Paul's command here in our text is all about. It's a call to a different obedience. That's how he spells it out. Look again at verse 22. He says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters how? Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. You see, Paul is calling these servants to serve their masters in a way that was different than what was common. And what was common was just making a show of it. That's what was common. That's what's meant by that phrase, by way of eye service. You're just doing it for show. And and we understand that, right? Sadly, that probably happens in too many of our workplaces, right? People just work for show. Oh, the boss is watching. Look busy. Or or we got folks coming in from corporate today, so no solitaire, get off Facebook, no long lunches. I got to look productive. So we're all all familiar with that kind of thinking, that kind of working, working for show. And guess what? People are no different in the first century than than they are today, right? So household servants would make sure that they looked busy when the master was watching. And the reason that people do that is very simple. Paul explains in the very next phrase in our text. By way of eye service as what? As people pleasers, right? So... We try to look busy. Why? Because we don't want anybody to get upset with us, right? We don't want people looking down on us. We don't want people to have a good opinion of us. So we care about what others think of us, especially if that means advancement for us or if things are going to be easier for us, like the boss or the master isn't upset with us. So we put on a good show. But Paul calls these bond servants to go beyond what was typical and normal of obedience in that culture. He calls them to embrace a sincere and a vibrant 
obedience. He calls them to obey with sincerity of heart. And what that phrase means is a a single-minded focus. Uh, The term heart, when it's used in a context like this, it means the true, real you. Not the fake and the phony facade. It's you. And it's it's obedience that's coming from the sincere you. It's not a double-minded, hypocritical, you know, I'm pretending to work in order to keep people happy with me. Obedience, that kind of you. It's you. Working honestly and sincerely. And then in verse 23, look, he tells them, whatever you do, work heartily. Work heartily. And that little phrase, it actually translates an interesting line in the original language. In the Greek, Paul actually says, whatever you do, work from the soul. Work from the soul. But what does that mean, working from your soul? Well, as commentator James Dunn explains, the soul was seen as the focus of human vitality. So when you spoke about somebody's working from the soul, it described an action that's done from the the vital heart of that person with all that individual's energy and force behind it. So it's the opposite of of half-hearted effort. It's the opposite of of just looking busy to keep people happy. It's the opposite of of putting on a show. It's working diligently with a single-minded focus in order to accomplish the task. It's the kind of employee that you'd want to have working for you. Hardworking, diligent, sincere, faithful worker. All their energy is put towards the task. And Paul says to these Christian slaves, that's how you're supposed to obey your earthly masters. Different than the culture. Beyond what the culture is doing. That's how you're supposed to obey your earthly masters. But look at what he grounds this in. Look at how this obedience isn't just like, well, this is how you get ahead. You know, this is how you make more money. No, look at how this obedience is really a manifestation of gospel truth. Why does Paul tell bondservants in this text to obey this way? Look again at what he says. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, implying that you have another master, a non-earthly one. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Why? Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily for who? Have I lost you already? As for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance as your reward. You are really serving who? The Lord Christ. So what was to motivate these first century bondservants was the gospel reality that they had a new master who had brought them into his kingdom. And ultimately their service was really all about honoring him. Obeying him. And it was to be done out of reverence for him. That's what fearing the Lord means. Out of reverence for Christ. What does that mean? It means living in awe of who he is. Right? Letting it affect you from the top of your head down to your toes. In awe of his glory. In awe of his majesty. In awe of his power. I realize you truly are Lord of everything. And that radically affects me. So from that place. That in awe of his glory. Out of reverence for Christ. These first century believers were to live exemplary lives, exemplary lives, even in a very difficult situation. And what I want you to understand is we're looking at this testimony. These were not people who had it easy. We, we lots of times want to have our excuses, right? Well, I'd be more faithful if I didn't have all these trials I was going through. We're looking at brothers and sisters who would be called to be faithful in a very difficult situation. Paul's calling them to exemplary service. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ. 
But as Paul calls them to this, this obedience, let the gospel affect their lives. This leaven work itself out this way, this kind of obedience. But as Paul calls them to this obedience, grounded in this, this reverence for Christ, the lordship of Christ, he also reminds them of who their Lord is. Their heavenly one is the one from, look again in verse 24, from whom they will receive the inheritance as their reward. So he's reminding them here, guys, you have a gracious, generous Lord. And guess what? He has an inheritance waiting for you as your reward. And that's there, that's there to motivate them. That's there to encourage them. Your Lord isn't some brutal taskmaster. He's gracious and he's generous and he has this great inheritance waiting for you. It was to motivate them. It was to encourage them. But what is this reward? Here it is. It's future glory in the eternal kingdom of God. Future glory in the eternal kingdom of God. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, the apostle Paul explains it this way. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He writes, For this light momentary affliction, and when Paul says light momentary affliction, does he just mean really easy stuff? Paul knew affliction, right? For... And the Christian life, it's there, right? If we're faithful, there's going to be affliction. But he says, for this light momentary affliction, listen to this, is preparing for us, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Brothers and sisters, there's glory coming. There's glory coming. And, and the suffering of this life, this is what Paul is saying, the suffering of this life is somehow connected to that future glory. Here's how it's connected. That, that future glory is going to show us the beauty of suffering for Christ. It's going to show us the beauty of that. It's going to, to reward us for suffering for Christ. And guess what, brothers and sisters? It's going to dwarf suffering for Christ. Amen? I mean, that's what Paul says. It's an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's going to dwarf whatever we suffer here for Christ. That future glory is going to dwarf it. It's an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And Christ our Lord has graciously, generously given us, actually secured for us, this inheritance, this glory that's coming. The Apostle Peter writes, this is the opening of his, his first epistle, his first letter. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the inheritance of reward. And it's coming, this future glory. And it's secured, it's secured by Christ. And it's, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. It's kept for us, and we're kept by Christ. Amen? This is the inheritance reward, the future glory that awaits us in the eternal kingdom of Christ. And, and why it's so beautiful that this is brought up here in this passage to these bond servants is such an inheritance stands in extreme stark contrast to what a first century slave would have ever expected. You see, slaves were people who were viewed as property. And in that culture, since you were viewed as property, you could never inherit property. So the idea of an inheritance, that was just a foreign concept to a first century slave. But here Paul reminds him, now don't forget who your master is. You have a glorious, generous Lord. And the one whom you truly serve has this glorious inheritance waiting for you. And not only will this master give them this inheritance as a reward, 
But Paul also reminds them that their heavenly master is the one who judges all. Look at verse 25. Verse 25. And what I want you to understand is verse 25 really stands as a powerful bridge between the command to the bondservant and the command to the masters. Things really aimed at both of them, reminding them of some important truth. Look again at what Paul writes, verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. In other words, remember, we all live our lives before who? The heavenly master. And from his holiness, he will bring justice. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. Christ sees and he judges all. He is Lord over both the bondservant who will reward their their patient endurance, who will reward their their faithful service in adorning the gospel. And he is also Lord over the masters who will judge in righteousness and holiness and fairness. He is Lord and judge over all. And that was a powerful gospel reality that needed to take root in both of these people's lives. The bond servants need to remember, ultimately, you're living before who? You're living before God, and he sees, and he will judge. You're living before Christ. And masters, you need to remember, you're not just over there doing this, and nobody sees what you're doing. There's a day of reckoning coming, and you will be held accountable. That's a powerful gospel reality that was to to shape their lives. That gospel leaven was to be working out through their lives. And that truth leads Paul to call these first century masters, these, these men who had these domestic servants as part of their household, to call them to a different kind of leadership. He called the, the bond servants to a different kind of obedience. And here he calls the masters to a different kind of leadership. Here's why it was different. In, in the first century Greco-Roman culture, a slave didn't have any rights. Uh, they were just property. Um, and you could treat your property in that culture however you like. I mean, we you can understand the same thing. You can take your car and you can let it just rot. You can drive it into a tree. It's your property. Um, but that's the way they viewed slaves in the first century. You could treat them however you like. Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher who had been so influential in shaping that culture, he said this. The issue of justice was not to be raised in regard to slaves. Because, he said, there could be no injustice involved in the way one treats mere property. There could be no injustice involved in the way one treats mere property. And that was the dominant view in the culture. Slaves had no rights. You could do with your slave as you liked. But look at what Paul's calling for here in verse 1. He calls for the opposite of Aristotle's dictum. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He commands the household master to treat your bondservants how? Justly. Fairly. Why? Well, it all comes back to gospel truth. Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing what? that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, Paul tells them, you better treat your servants in such a way that not only will you be able to stand before your master in heaven, but you better treat them in such a way that reflects your master in heaven. That's knowing. It's not just, hey, you're going to stand before him one day. It's you better treat them in such a way that reflects your master in heaven. You see, just like earlier, the husband was called to love his wife in a way that reflected the love of Christ. And fathers parent in a way that reflects the parenting of God. Here, these servants were being called to lead their household in a way that reflected the Lord of heaven. And this was how the gospel leaven was to be working out in a master's life. 
He too, just like the Christian bondservant, was to pursue this relationship, this, this very difficult first century reality. And, and again, it was just, it was so ingrained in their culture. This was the world in which they lived. But they were to pursue that difficult first century reality, work out that first century reality in a way that was countercultural. Culture says they're just property. You can treat them however you want. Paul says, no, treat them in a way that reflects your father, your Lord in heaven. They were to treat them in a way that was countercultural because it reflected the truth of the gospel. And that's the way that the gospel leaven was working here. As Paul calls these people, both the servants and the masters, to live in a starkly different way than the culture around them. To live in a starkly different way because of the gospel. But what was the long-term effect of living that way? What did the leaven of the gospel worked out that way in those relationships produced? Where did it lead? Well, it led to a couple places. Praise God, it led to his glory. Led to his glory. As they served and said, Jesus Christ is enough, it glorifies God. It also led to increased gospel witness, as I've already pointed out from Paul's words to Titus. But in addition to those things, it led to some radically transformed relationships between servants and masters. Let me close this morning with one powerful example of that. Radically transformed relationship between servant and master. This letter that we're working through, the letter to the Colossians, it wasn't the only letter written to the people in this church. As Paul sent this letter to them, he also sent a more personal letter to a man in that church in Colossae, a man named Philemon. And Philemon, like a lot of people in the first century, was a slave owner. But one of Philemon's slaves, a young man named Onesimus, had run away. He'd run away from Colossae, run away from Philemon, and he'd run away to the city of Rome where God in his sovereign grace led him to cross paths with the Apostle Paul. And Paul, ever the evangelist, shared the gospel with Onesimus, and God opened Onesimus' eyes, gave him a transformed heart, and he responded to the gospel and he embraced Jesus Christ. Onesimus came to faith there in Rome with the Apostle Paul. But after that happened, Paul had that young man, that new believer, that runaway slave, do an amazing and a very scary thing. He sent him back to Colossae. He sent him back to Philemon. He sent him back to his earthly master from whom he'd run away. And why I say it was scary, because in that era, often the penalty for a runaway slave was death. However, Paul called Onesimus to honor Christ and go back and make that broken relationship right with Philemon. But Paul didn't send Onesimus back to Colossae empty-handed. He sent him with this letter that we're studying this morning, and he also sent him with that personal letter to Philemon. And that personal letter to a slave owner about his slave has been recorded for us as the very word of God. So take your Bibles now and turn over to the book of Philemon. Go past first second Thessalonians, past first and second Timothy, past Titus. If you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. The short one chapter letter, Philemon. Now you see here in this letter to Philemon, after Paul's opening greeting, he writes the following very kind words to this man Philemon. Starting in verse four. He says, I thank my God always. When I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love 
and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love. Notice that repeated love. Your love, Philemon. Much comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So he speaks those kind words to Philemon, this slave owner who's Christian. But then look at what he calls Philemon to do with his runaway slave. Verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul is talking about leading him to Christ there in Rome. He says, formerly he was useless to you. And, and some scholars believe because of things we see here in this letter, not only did Onesimus run away, but he stole money and property from Philemon. He says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to me and to you. And, and Onesimus' name means useful. It's a little play here that Paul's doing. Formerly he was useless, but now he is useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a little while, that you might have him back forever. No longer, listen to this, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. You see here, Paul is asking Philemon to let the truth of the gospel define and transform his relationship with Onesimus. He said, let that, let that gospel leaven work, Philemon. Don't receive him back just like the culture says, like a runaway slave to do with whatever you like. Welcome him back how? As a brother. As a brother. And church history tells us that's exactly what Philemon did. According to church history, this Onesimus from Colossae was released by Philemon from his servitude to Philemon. And then Onesimus joined Paul and became a minister of the gospel. And eventually, Onesimus went on to serve as the pastor of the church in the city of Ephesus. And I think that's so beautiful because Ephesus was the church that originally sent people to plant the church in Colossae. And it comes all the way back around. This runaway slave became the bishop of Ephesus. All those little churches there in Ephesus, he was over them all. This runaway slave became the bishop of Ephesus. And the reason why that happened is both simple... And beautiful is because the leaven of the gospel transformed the situation. The leaven of the gospel transformed the situation. You see, the truth that our greatest problem, sin and judgment, has been overcome, that we have a glorious Lord in heaven, that we have a new identity as brothers and sisters in Christ, those truths led Onesimus, even back in that scary situation, to go back to Philemon. And it led Philemon to welcome his runaway slave back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And that's what the gospel can do if we just let it. I mean, can you imagine all those people who, who sat under Onesimus' ministry and Onesimus would say, let me tell you a story about the gospel. 
and what it can do. Really happened. That's the power, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. That's what it will do if we just let it. It will transform us. It will transform our relationships with other people. And it will even impact the culture around us. We're such big fans of going after political power and financial power. And we just sit on the gospel. But this is what the gospel will do if we just let it. So back to my opening question. Does the gospel truly shape your life? How much? How deep? Look at this example of our brothers and sisters in the first century. And let's learn from them. Let's learn from their testimony. That we too might, might embrace our trials. We might embrace our difficulties. We might even embrace our mundane moments of life in a way that adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior. Let's let the 11 of the gospel brothers and sisters do its work. Amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you and we appeal to you for the ministry of the Spirit. We have this this flesh who leads us to distractions, leads us to apathy, leads us to such a a me-centric approach to life. And we lose sight. Lose sight of the glorious gospel. What you have done for us, what you continue to do for us, the glorious future we have ahead of us. That we have a Lord like like no one else. What Lord would come and die for his servants? We lose sight of that. We get so focused on ourselves. So I pray for the ministry of your spirit. Take the truth that we've talked about this morning. Take this glorious testimony that we see in this passage and challenge our hearts. Challenge our hearts. Let's not be a people who quarantine off the gospel. Make it a Sunday morning thing or just around Christians thing. But make us people who who let it saturate all of our life. Constantly going back to its truth. Constantly feeding our hearts on its truth. So that we would be transformed. That our relationships would be transformed. And that the culture around us would be transformed as more and more come to see and understand and embrace salvation in Jesus Christ alone. These things we pray in his name. Amen.